All right, welcome to another week of Cannon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Peter Kreeft, who has written a ton of books, everything from logic textbooks all the way to we talk about a few of his surfing books. The episode was mainly about his book, C.S. Lewis for the Third Millennium, which was written in the early 90s, and we take inventory of how civilization has gone since then, and you can imagine uh, the report card is not very good. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that the Christian Heritage series at Canon Press has a brand new title, Lex Rex, The Law and the Prince by Samuel Rutherford. Don't want to miss that. Go and see the whole collection at canonpress.com. So, without further ado, meet Dr. Peter Kreeft. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Peter Kreeft. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with your book, C.S. Lewis, The Third Millennium. But quickly before we get there, um, you have written a lot of books. You are a prolific writer. Folks can go find those. Uh, do you have anywhere specific you want to recommend? Is it Ignatius Press and a few others that you want to recommend people buy from? Uh, most of them are either Ignatius Press or St. Augustine's Press, but you can find uh, pretty much all of them on my website. Okay, perfect. What is that website? Just petergrafe.com. I never visit it. <laughs> okay, perfect. So one thing I had a question about before we get started was you have a few books on surfing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? Uh, my books on surfing. Yes. yes. <laughs> Why do I write them? Because I surf. The you do surf. Is I, I, I surf, therefore I am. Okay. Uh, there, there are two schools of surfers. One of them says that uh, people who use a boogie board or body surf aren't real surfers. Uh, they're spongers. And the other school says, no, they are real surfers. I'm the other school. Okay. Uh, I have a balance problem, so I use a body board. But you can use a body board for anything. You can use a, a short board or a long board for it. And it's a lot easier. And it's, it. and it's the world's cheapest and easiest mystical experience. <laughs> you just lose your ego. <laughs> sea is like heaven. Earth is left far behind on shore. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, there you go. Just to uh, demonstrate the, uh, the breadth of your writing, it goes from Socratic logic texts all the way to surfing. Uh, you're going to find something you like in uh, Dr. Crave's. Uh, Actually, it's rather, it's rather dangerous to combine those two things, Socratic <laughs> logic and surfing, because the closest I ever came to dying was uh, when I was body surfing right after a hurricane passed. The, uh, uh, the waves were enormous and really messy, and there were a lot of uh, riptides, which, of course, are very dangerous, and they were so exciting and so magnificent. I just let myself be carried wherever they took me, even though I'm an only an average swimmer. Uh, and the syllogism almost killed me. Uh, the syllogism was this. I have become the ocean. That's a major premise, minor premise. The one thing that can never drown in the ocean is the ocean. Conclusion, I can never drown. I was convinced <laughs> that I was immortal. You did survive, so... Yeah, yeah, it, it dumped me out of the sea like Jonah's fish. Okay. It didn't digest me very well. <laughs> now, one thing about C.S. Lewis and the Third Millennium, six essays on the abolition of man uh, that, I've, that I immediately found interesting was this book was written in 1994. Before we get into the contents of the book, can you give us a landscape of what was going on in 1994? Well, uh, the process of 
the garbage swirling down the spirals of degeneration into uh, nothingness that began many centuries ago it was accelerating. Uh, it, in, it was already accelerating in Huxley's day when he wrote Brave New World, and it was accelerating more in Lewis's day when he wrote The Evolution of Man, and it continued to accelerate uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now it's almost insane. Agreed, which is why I thought this book, however relevant it was in 1994, I was, I was three years old, so uh, I'm not positive, but it is supremely relevant now. So all six essays that you write uh, interact with Lewis's Abolition of Man. Could you introduce us to that book? Well, uh, I'm not going to get into the details, the six essays, because my mind is like a sieve and I forgot what I've written. <laughs> but um, the main thesis is that uh, Huxley is a prophet. And what he wrote in 1930 or 1932 in Brave New World uh, was a prophecy of what we almost completely have today. We're not moving towards the real world. We're well, well in it. The abolition of the family, the abolition of marriage, the abolition of sexual morality, the abolition of the natural law. Uh, for Lewis, this is literally the abolition of human nature, uh, a consciousectomy. A conscience. It's happening only, only among uh, uh, the intellectuals. Uh, ordinary people are still somewhat commonsensical and confused. But uh, more and more, the students are imitating the teachers, and the teachers are massively on board with this abolition of man, abolition of conscience. So do you think with that comment there about um, this, is, this is largely happening in the academic elite? No, also in popular media. In popular media as well. Which, is, which is a, has a much more powerful voice. So is maybe the acceleration of, like, of, of right now in 2020, is it that... Uh, what was happening up in the, you know, in the in the silver towers of education is now reaching the the people that that lag. Yeah, yeah it's the trickle down effect. I'm not sure whether it works in economics, but it certainly works in philosophy. <laughs> right. Can you introduce us to the abolition of man? What what was Lewis up to in that book? He saw that, at least in the educational institutions of his time, uh, students were being systematically conditioned to deny. Uh, objective morality, or what Lewis calls the Tao. He used the Chinese word for it to make clear that it's universal and not just Western. Uh, and that all value judgments were simply expressions of subjective feeling, uh, which is now the standard view. Right. Can you and give me that a... Is, that, is, that, is, that is cutting out one of the three essential parts of human nature. There's the head, and there's the heart, and there's the guts, and this cuts out the heart. We still have reason and we still have the passions, but we don't have the, uh, the moral conscience to mediate between them. Lewis brings up a, a textbook that he, that he picked up by two authors who talk about a waterfall. Can you... And significantly, significantly, they teach literature because the, the rot is much more advanced in the humanities, especially in English departments, than anywhere else. It's, it's simply impossible to find a good English department at any major university. That's not uh, infected deeply with deconstructionism, which is essentially the denial that objective truth exists anywhere, even in language. What was the example that Lewis used with the waterfall in that English textbook? Samuel Taylor Coleridge, one of the great literary critics in history, observed two tourists arguing about a waterfall, and one said it's sublime, and the other said it's pretty. 
and Coleridge said, uh, uh, the one who says pretty is simply wrong, and the one who says sublime is simply right. Uh, and Lewis used that as an example of uh, whether values are objective or subjective. If you agree with Lewis, and Lewis agrees with Coleridge, and Coleridge agrees with the, the smart tourist, that means that the beauty is really in the waterfall, not just in our feelings about it. That values, whether aesthetic or ethical, are not just projections from our feelings, but discoveries of something that's really there. That a waterfall is more than just a lot of tons of, of H2O. It's right. a work of art. One major thread through your essays um, is you mentioned Lewis calls it the Tao. Uh, you call it the natural law or the goodness of good and the badness of bad. Can you, can you talk about that? Why is that so important to, to not only Lewis's argument, but your argument for uh, the third millennium and its ultimate health? Because that distinguishes us from animals. Animals have no morality. Uh, and when, uh, when the dog pees on the carpet, we don't give him a lecture and send him to confession. We just uh, train him. We beat him or we reward him. And according to most psychologists, that's how we should treat each other. In a nice way, in a painless way. But uh, basically, uh, we're very complicated machines and we need readjustment. Right. What do you think is the lie that people are buying about subjective anything? The poison of subjectivity, as Lewis would say. Not subjectivity, because that's a genuine dimension of human experience, but subjectivism. Subject. Reduction of objective truth and goodness and beauty to something subjective. That's the danger. It basically reduces us to animals. In other areas of human life, we're obviously not animals. In science and technology, we're much cleverer than animals. And uh, uh, in organizing our culture and our civilization, we do things that animals couldn't dream of doing. But when it comes to morality, and most especially sexual morality, which uh, so far... Uh, is the locus of almost all the subjectivism because ordinary people don't really think it's it's perfectly all right to, to go in for nuclear warfare or uh, insider trading or environmental pollution. But when it comes to sex, anything goes. But it's inevitable that that rot is going to spread to all of morality. It's expanding forever. Uh, nobody's ever satisfied. Uh, if if our ancestors or our great grandparents saw today's world, they would literally not believe it. What you mean? You mean it's perfectly legal and and, and not only legal but almost required to approve the uh, deliberate murder of your own unborn children? And uh, when two homosexual men have a friendship, that's that they demand that that be called a marriage. Uh, and when a man who is a man by every scientific standard declares that he's a woman, the world must believe him and treat him as a woman and call him her. That's that's quite insane. Quite. One uh one of your last essays is titled Joyful Cosmology, Paralandra's Great Dance as an Alternative Worldview to Modern Reductionism. Um I enjoyed this chapter immensely. A couple of questions, uh maybe for folks. Can you tell us about the Ransom trilogy? I feel like that may be Lewis's uh yeah. somewhat less read books. Could you introduce those to us? Yeah. Um, Lewis wrote three science fiction novels located on Mars, Venus, and Earth, respectively. Uh, and the second one, That Hideous Friend, is basically a fictionalization of the abolition of man. It's a lot like Brave New World, although it's bigger and more complicated and more interesting. Uh, 
So that's the book that pairs with the abolition of man. What kind of a world do we have once the Tao is systematically denied? The middle book in the trilogy, Paralandra, is the most beautiful one. It's about a trip to Venus. And even in Lewis's day, he knew that it was scientifically impossible that there was life on Venus. But so what? Fiction writers are allowed uh, that kind of leeway. Uh, and Venus turns out to be a kind of an unfallen paradisical planet. Uh, and at the end of the story, which is basically a story of uh, Adam and Eve given a second chance on the planet Venus in another race uh, and not falling. Uh, and it's the only book I have ever seen that dares to ask the question, what would have happened if we hadn't fallen in the Garden of Eden? Uh, what would have happened next? And it gives you some fascinating hints in answer to that question. And at the end, uh, the, uh, the two angelic spirits. Uh, that are the kind of satanic archetypes of Adam and Eve, uh, namely Mars and Venus, uh, show the hero, uh, Ransom, who comes from Earth uh, to try to avert that fall and finally succeeds. Uh, they show him, uh, in a kind of a mystical vision, uh, God's view of history and the cosmos and the whole universe. And it only takes a couple of pages, but it's the strangest and most wonderful and transcendent thing I think Lewis ever wrote. And it's, a, it's an alternative worldview to our reductionism. So, yeah, I was wondering, could you tell me then about the reductionism? So we, you, we were talking about the subjectivism mm-hmm. that abolition of man is going after. What is the reductionism? That... OK, that's a good word to define. Uh, there are three philosophies of the world. Uh, the best one, the truest one, and one that all the great writers uh, come from is basically Shakespeare's, which he summarizes when he has Hamlet tell his friend Horatio, who has just seen Hamlet's father's ghost and doesn't know what to believe because he didn't believe in ghosts. Uh, He tells Horatio, Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in all your philosophies. That's one philosophy of life. Reductionism is the opposite. There are fewer things in heaven and earth that is an objective reality than in your dreams and your subjective opinions and your desires. The world is much less than it seems. It's just a bunch of meaningless, uh, random atoms colliding and producing ever more complex combinations. Uh, That's reductionism. The third philosophy, which is held only by a few intellectuals, is that there's exactly the same number of things in heaven and earth as there is in our philosophies. In other words, that I know everything. And everything real is in my reason, and everything in my reason is real. So there has to be either more, fewer, or the same things in objective reality as in subjective reality. And everyone who's sane says there's more. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a famous scene that comes to mind in Narnia where, uh, is it Eustace that says, you know, stars in our world are just big flaming balls of gas nothing but balls of gas yes <laughs> and the retired star says no even in your world that's only what a star is made of it's not what a star is wonderful i had a professor who called uh called the reductionism nothing buttery yes i think this one is one that probably the most christians are maybe at risk of it feels less uh Maybe it's less on the surface than subjectivism. It's, it's, it's too mystical for most people, Christian or non-Christian. So I don't think it's their Christianity gets in the way. I think it's their just cultural conditioning. We're, we're used to reducing the complex to the simple, which is a good scientific method. Right. One step at a time, uh, 
divide the work into areas, divide the areas into steps, uh, reduce everything to mathematics. That works very well in the laboratory. It works horribly in life. <laughs> so I'm not sure. There was a run of, of movies about space in the last decade or so. Um, did you by chance see at least a trailer for it? was a one called Gravity, Sandra Bullock. Oh, I saw the movie, yeah. Um, uh, so I heard it once in terms of um, illustrating the different, different cosmologies. The, the trailer alone, if anybody hasn't seen it, just shows, you know, if, if you were unconnected to, to uh, a spacecraft and you're just floating, and it was just utterly terrifying. Um, it's a very eerie, terrifying experience. Um, I found Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey also terrifying. Yes. And, That's a brilliant example of reductionism. Right. So can, you, can we talk about that? Because I, I've heard that, you know, uh, those who came before us would not imagine the world that way. That being up there was the goal, not the terror. It, does that, yeah. does that sound fact, right? In, in fact, as Lewis points out in the first volume of his space trilogy, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, the ancients never called it outer space. They called it the heavens. It was more, not less, than we think. It was full, not empty. We go out into our backyard and we look at the uh, the great beyond, the the great dome of of, of blackness lit with stars uh, on a on a clear night, and we get the impression that we're we're a tiny little fire uh, surrounded by a, a a great dark storm, that we're surrounded by emptiness. Uh, the ancients never got that feeling. Uh, one of the Greek myths is that uh, the stars are holes in the dark blanket that's put over us at night, and through those holes you can see little bits of heaven. Another is that the stars are the campfires of the gods. Uh, the myths are, of course, only pictures, but they're pictures that express a, a, a feeling that there's much more up there rather than less than we think. That's the ancient view. For us, it's, it's less. It's emptiness. Uh, what I loved about your book was that you ended on something like a joyful cosmology. And I think that's probably what I, I think the hardest to give to someone who maybe, uh, as you said, is sort of socially conditioned, a modern, who happens to be a Christian, but they're, they're very modern in their sensibilities. Um, why is that so important? Why did you choose to end your book about Lewis for the third millennium there. Because if, if, if there's no greatness and beauty and, so to speak, heroism in the cosmos, then there's not going to be in human life either. Uh, most modern heroes are terribly flawed. If you carefully compare Peter Jackson's version of Lord of the Rings to Tolkien's version, uh, and the movie's a masterpiece, but still, every single character is cut down a peg. Everybody is a little more cynical, a little more suspicious, a little more conflicted, and, and certainly much less heroic than it is in Tolkien. Uh, who, who, can, who can create credible heroes in modern literature? Very few people. But every, anybody can create credible villains. The conclusion, I wanted to read just a bit, just a, a couple sentences uh, of your book. Optimism or pessimism about the third millennium? We have no crystal ball, but we have clues. What is the bottom line? The bottom line is optimism. Do you still feel that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, are, we are not promised that Western civilization will survive. 
we are promised that the church will survive. And if the hell of gates can't beat it, the gates of hell can't beat it either. And Amen. vice versa. Amen. A hearty agreement in terms of uh, in terms of the church and the everlasting body of Christ. What would your opinion in terms of, of Western civilization, are you optimistic about that at all? Well, the closest, the closest we have to a crystal ball is the Bible. And the Bible traces over a thousand years of history of God's chosen people, which he chose as a, a, a lesson to the world. And one of the aspects of that lesson is the role of morality. Uh, and the thing that the Jews taught the world is that morality is the key to social uh, success. That... Uh, uh, as all the prophets say, there's, there's, there's a higher standard that cultures as well as individuals are responsible for. And when they obey God's will, they flourish. And when they disobey, they don't flourish. They, they self-destruct. But it also uh, points out that uh, we're free to choose at any point. And therefore, we can choose to fall when we're above, way up there, and we can choose to rise when we're way down. We can choose to apostatize, we can choose to repent. And Israel's done both many times in our history, and so can we. So the future is not determined, we're not doomed, uh, it's in our hands. Right now our hands are pretty dirty, but we can wash them. Amen. I, I think there's a great Chesterton quote somewhere about us knowing the way there's out There's a great Chesterton quote for everything in the world, <laughs> I think. Uh, Dr. Kraft, you've been very kind with your time. Uh, what would you recommend if folks wanted to know more? So we talked about your book, C.S. Lewis, for the third millennium. We mentioned you've written so much. What, what would you say if somebody wanted an introduction to who you are and, and your work, where would you send them? Well, that depends on what they're interested in. Are they interested in philosophy? Are they interested in theology? Are they interested in spiritual life? Are they interested in literature? Are they interested in culture and civilization? Um, if out of the clear blue sky, there uh, somebody said, uh, give me the four books that you would want me to read the most. I'd say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, okay, highly recommend those four, definitely. PeterCrave.com. You can find his books on Amazon, Ignatius Press, Press. St. Augustine's Press. Uh, thank you so much again for your time. Cheers to you, and God bless you. Bye-bye.